thank you for coming back on a Sunday night. You're the best Sunday night crowd I've seen today. You know, are wonderful. Good to have our young folks back with us back here in the back. And uh, somebody came in this morning and said, we have to get here early so we can get a seat on the back row. I said, if you're going to beat the rest of the Baptists, here you are. You're going to have to get here <laughs> and get on the back row. But good to see you back tonight. And those in the balcony up there, good to have you here. Take your copy of God's Word and go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're not really going to be in a series on Sunday nights, uh, but there are some passages that I just want to touch on and deal with over the next few weeks. So Ephesians chapter 2 is the one we'll be in tonight, beginning in verse 1. And really this is a passage about, about how we were saved. Chapter 1, I didn't go back and take time to go through that, but in chapter 1, Paul talks about God's plan of salvation and the sovereign aspect of it. And then in the uh, beginning of chapter 2, he really just deals with how we were saved. Every one of you here tonight who has been born again, is everybody here saved? Amen. Amen. All right, if you're not saved, you need to see me right after church, okay? Um, everybody here who's saved, you uh, have a testimony. Some cases you might not remember the, the date on the calendar that you were saved. If you didn't pay attention, you, you don't remember the date. I happen to remember that it was in 1972, August 13th, because when I got saved, someone said to me, you should write that down in your Bible. Sounded like a good idea, so I wrote it in my Bible. And years later, I'm thankful that I did. Um, so you may or may not remember the date. You may not remember the day of week it was. It was a Sunday for me. Um, but you remember what happened to you. You remember the event. You remember meeting Jesus. You remember confessing your sin and asking Jesus to save your soul. And what I'm saying is you have a testimony. If you're saved, you have something personal to happen to you that nobody can take away. You have, you have this time in your life when you know that Jesus changed everything about you, changed your way you see life, woke you up from spiritual death, and gave you life, and you, from that point on, saw life differently. Now, I was, at 11, I was 11 years old when I, when I got saved. Had not lived long enough to really <clears throat> get into debauchery or be, you know, have a testimony of some uh, heinous nature. But I can tell you, from being 11 years old, that the day I got saved, the day I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me and come out of my heart and save me, something changed, something happened. And the very next day, I was out riding bikes with my friend. His name was Mike Friend. That was his last name. So Mike Friend was my friend. And we would shoot BB guns. And, and uh, side note, somebody said one time, a BB gun won't kill a snake. I'm here to tell you it will. Okay? Uh, it will. If you shoot him with enough BBs, he's dead. So, uh, but my friend and I, we would, we would hang out together. And on the very next day after I got saved, I said to my, my friend, I said, you know what I did yesterday? He said, what? I said, man, we went to church, and we didn't go to church. We were not a church-going family, and we went to church because my dad almost died, and God got a hold of him. And I said, you know what? We, we went to church yesterday. He said, well, what did you do at church? I said, well, that's what I'm going to tell you. I was in this class, and uh, a bunch of us guys in there, and this lady asked us if we was going to heaven. I didn't know about going to heaven. So everybody raised their hand except me. And she said, Robert, do you know you're going to heaven? I said, I'd like to, but I don't know that I'm going. She goes, well, I can help you with that. And she shared the gospel with me, and I prayed to receive Jesus. 
And so I told my friend, I said, man, I'm going to heaven now, 11-year-old. You know what my friend said? I want to go too. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to tell you what that lady told me. And I said, Jesus died on the cross, paid for your sin, and he rose again on the third day. And she said, if I would pray and ask Jesus to forgive my sin, that he would, and he would give me eternal life. And my friend, Mike's friend, prayed and asked Jesus to come into his heart. And I've never seen that guy again once we got older and moved. But I think Mike got saved that day because, you know, I got saved the day before. And I was telling him, but you know what? One day after I got saved, you know how I could share the gospel? Because I had a testimony. I could say, hey, let me tell you what happened to me. So what I'm saying in, in introduction is you don't have to be a Bible scholar or have degrees in the Bible to share Jesus with people. You know what you really need? A personal relationship with him. And when you have a personal relationship with him, then you can tell other people what Jesus did for you. And, and, and that's what I did. So in this passage, Paul tells us what Jesus did for us when he saved us. He gives us the details of it, which I think is kind of cool. Okay, So look at the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul said to those Christians in Ephesus, he said, And you, he, Jesus, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Paul begins by reminding those Christians, and then by connection with us, reminding us of the same things. He said, before you were saved, you were in the condition of all mankind. You were spiritually dead. You had physical animation. One writer that I, I read behind this week said, said, the world's full of zombies, spiritual zombies. They have no spiritual life in them. They have physical animation. They're walking around. They're doing things. They're thinking. They're building. They're engaging in all the, the things of the flesh. But he said, they're dead. They're spiritually dead. They're walking dead people. You and I were walking dead people one time, weren't we? We were in that group until Jesus came and he, and he made us alive. Now, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? I knew you had asked, so I'm going to give you a couple of them, okay? Uh, number one, to be spiritually dead is most overall categorized by being separated from the God who created us. If we are separated from the God who created us, we are spiritually dead because he's life and he's the giver of life. And to be spiritually dead is to have no relationship with him. Now, the reason we can have no relationship with God before we get saved is because sin offends God and he's holy. And our sin separates us from God. And it isn't, it isn't that, we, that we sin and become sinners. No, we sin because we are sinners. In other words, we have a sin nature that we got from Adam. And, and this is hard for some people to grasp, but when we are born into the world, we're born into the world as sinners separated from God. Now, here's a caveat with that. Children who die before reaching an age where they can make a decision to respond to God's grace, they're safe in Jesus, and they go to heaven. But the fact is they're still born sinners. Everybody follow me. They're still born separated from God by their sin, which is why when a child or a young person reaches an age of accountability, it's imperative that they understand the gospel and that they understand they personally have to come to Jesus and get saved. 
They can't get into heaven because mom and daddy saved or dad's a deacon or sings in the choir. They have to come to Jesus themselves personally like we learned this morning. That narrow gate's one at a time. You got to come in there all by yourself. And so uh, we come into the world separated from God because we're spiritually dead. Paul reminded them of that problem. We're spiritually dead when we're born in the world because of Adam. When Adam disobeyed God, uh, he fell from, from relationship with God. He was separated from God because of his sin. And we are, are born after that Adamic nature. Paul goes on to say later that the second Adam came, Jesus, to fix what the first Adam lost. And that's how we get saved. So we're separated from God by our sin. We're born in that condition. We're born separated from God because we have a sin nature. And the consequences of sin is death. You said, you said, well, pastor, you just said we were already dead. Oh, yeah, but dead gets worse, okay? You say, how can it get worse? Well, when you come into the world spiritually dead, physical death comes with that because in Adam's sin, physical death came into the world. What did God tell Adam? In the day that you disobey me and you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. God meant you will die spiritually because you'll be separated from me, but you'll start aging and you'll go through all the problems of age and you'll die and Adam did die so there's spiritual death and physical death Paul said back in in Romans 6 23 in the first part of the verse for the wages of sin is death and that's exactly what it means it is the penalty of sin it's the punishment for sin and the worst part is a person who dies without Christ like we learned this morning that person who goes into Broadgate and walks to Broadway and they end up in destruction, they will spend the rest of eternity separated from God and never have spiritual life at all and just have spiritual death forever. So those are the, are the conditions that we come into the world. Now, Paul goes on here to do what I call quantify sin. He goes a little deeper. He says, well, we could say to, to Brother Paul, well, you said we're, we were spiritually dead and now we're spiritually alive. And when you describe being spiritually dead, we understand all of these things about sin and our sin nature but then Paul goes a little deeper here and he says we're we're sinners by trespasses uh, it's a word that means to to break the rules it's a word that means to step out of line it's a word that means to 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 have wrong conduct or to break God's laws to deviate from the truth we live in a world full of people who deviate from the truth we live in a world full of people who break God's laws and they break his rules. We probably on Sunday night crowd don't need to be reminded that God is sovereign and his rules are the only ones that count. His laws are the only ones that matter. Paul said we're guilty of sin by trespasses, by breaking God's laws. And then he uses harmardia, which is the most common word for sin, that simply means to miss the mark. Uh, someone's shooting a, a, an arrow and they shoot for the bullseye, but it can never hit it. We, after we're saved even, want to be perfect and holy and righteous. How many of us achieve that? None of us. Why? Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it is by God's grace that he applies his holiness to us and his righteousness to make us qualified. Sad to say, even after we're saved in these mortal bodies, we're terrible shots. We, we can't hit the bullseye. We can't measure up. The only difference is we have the Holy Spirit who convicts us and we confess and we keep shooting for the sinner, but we can never make it. I got good news for you, though. When you get your resurrection body one day, 
you'll be removed from even the presence of sin, and you can hit the bullseye every time, and we can live holy before God and be what he created us to be. But in this life, we cannot. All have sinned and come short, and we all fall short. Um, God saved us. He dealt with the sin issue. He gave us the righteousness we need, and he gave us the perfection we need. Now, let me say a word about, about human effort. When you look around in life, you say, well, there are good people in life and there are bad people in life. And there's a key word here you need to understand, relatively. Relatively, okay? When we tend to measure people's goodness or badness, who do we measure it against? Us, other people, right? Against what we think is right. Are we good measuring sticks? No, what did I just say? We're all terrible shots. We're, none of us are hitting the bullseye. So it'd be like measuring somebody else's righteousness against a crooked stick, okay? Because we're crooked. We're, we're not straight. So how, how is it that human effort comes into this thing and human righteousness comes into this thing? And the answer is it doesn't. There is no such thing as human righteousness. There is no such thing as us doing uh, a good works. Let me illustrate it this way. One person might be a fine, upstanding citizen. They're honest. They pay their taxes. They take care of their family. They're a faithful husband or wife. They work faithfully at their employer. They don't steal from their employer. They, they're faithful. They're just good people by human standards. They're faithful. They're honest. They're trustworthy. They're a good person, we would call them. And then there's maybe down the rung a little bit, there's a person who does what they're supposed to do, but they're not like that first person. They got secret sins and they got maybe a secret life going on and maybe they're not all that, but we still say they're a pretty good person and then we got the ax murderer, right? So we got this, we got this mass, you know, from this person that we think is pretty good down to the person whom, yeah, they're all right, and then we got the mass murderer, the person who's just despicable, who's, who's wicked. Here's something we need to understand. All three are in the same boat. All just as lost. All just as wicked before God. Here's the difference. Sin doesn't always manifest itself in the same way. A person that's lost and is a sinner may have a desire in them to do what they know is right to the limit that they know is right, but that's not going to save them. The, the next person now may say, well, you know, I just want to stay out of jail, so I'll just stay ahead of the line a little bit so that I don't get in trouble and lose my job or, or anything like that. And then the person who's, who's just absolutely out there wicked, who's just given themselves over to debauchery or sin or whatever, they've just thrown all caution in the wind and they express their sinfulness without restraint, hedonism. Well, all three are still lost. You understand that? And, and all three still need Jesus. Let me illustrate it another way. And this will help you when you talk to people about because sometimes when you witness the people, they'll go, well, you know, I do okay. I think I'm all right. When I get before God, everything will be okay. And you have to tell them, no, everything's not going to be okay. Let's say we went down to Green Coast. Sherry and I like to go down there and sit at the park. Have you ever been to Green Coast Springs Park on the river? It's really nice if you've never been there. They have picnic tables. And you can sit in these little swings by the river and look at the water and the ducks and boats and sailboats. And you can sit out there. Don't tell everybody. <laughs> We like, it's, yeah, it's a secret, okay. <clears throat> we go down there, and, and sometimes we'll get a cheeseburger and just sit in the car and look at the water, okay? There's a pier down there, and the river right there is about probably a mile and a half, two miles across. It's pretty wide. And let's say, let's say salvation, 
Let's say God said, if you can jump from the end of that pier to the other side of the river, you're saved. Man, people would line up down there, wouldn't they? Well, think about the different groups of people you would have. You would have some people who have physical impairments. Maybe a person in a wheelchair. They're not going to get far. Maybe somebody pushes them really fast down the pier and, you know, shoves them out there. They're going to go five yards and they're going to land in the water. Probably not the right thing to do, but, you know, trying to help them. And then the next person, maybe, maybe the next person is not really in good physical shape, but they can run and they run down the pier and they jump and they get further than the person in the wheelchair. And then there's the all-star athlete, maybe one of the football players or running back or, or, or an Olympic runner says, man, get out of my way because I'm running to the other side. And they go running down the pier and they jump and maybe they get out there 25 yards. But you know what's going to happen to all three of them people in all three groups? They're all going to get wet. There's no way to jump into the other side of the river. That's what it's like when people try to save themselves. That's exactly what it's like. Some people are, they, they work harder than others. Some people look better than others. Some people are, look more righteous than others. Man, they check all the blocks. They go to church. They attend class. They give. They serve. They do this. They do all these religious things like the Pharisees. And they think they're in. But in reality, they can't jump their way to heaven. They can't get righteous enough to make themselves acceptable to God. Why? Because Paul said they're spiritually dead. And a dead person can't help themselves. A dead person can't fix themselves. A dead person is dead. And the only way spiritually, the only way spiritually we can have spiritual life is if God gives it to us. Free. The prophet Isaiah, if, if we had any pride in ourselves about our spiritual righteousness, he shot it all down. Listen to this. In Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah said this. But we are all like an unclean thing. Well, that makes you feel good, doesn't it? We're all just filthy. We're all like this unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Let me interpret that for you. Brother Isaiah said, on your best day, you are trash spiritually. On your best day, you can't even begin to measure up. On your best day, you're just old, dirty, filthy rags. So even the best among us who would say, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, God's going to be proud of me. I'm going to work my way to heaven. Not even close. Not even close. The only way to get there is in Jesus Christ. Then Paul tells us in verses 2 and 3 that there's an evidence of spiritual death that we, we can see it. Look at verses 2 and 3. In which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh and, and fulfilling desires of the flesh and the mind and were by nature children of wrath just as others. Paul uses the term here, uh, once walked. When you see that, when Paul uses it, he means lifestyle. means the choices we make, the things we do. And he said there was a time before we were saved that, that our lifestyle gave away our lostness. That our lifestyle gave evidence of being lost. That we walked 
in terms of being a lost person, that we walk like lost people walk. And let me say this right here for us Sunday night crowd. There's a, real, there's a fine line between saying to lost people, you need Jesus, and being, and being harsh on them about sin when the sin will get corrected when they meet Jesus. In other words, what I'm saying is, let's don't try to fix the symptom till we fix what's wrong with them. And when they meet Jesus, then the lifestyle changes. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up and say wrong is wrong and right is right. We should always do that. But you do understand, right, that a, that a, a lost physician, an MD, who performs abortions, the best way to get them to stop performing abortions is what? Lead them to Jesus. And when they meet Jesus, then their walk's going to change. Sherry teaches a lady, true story, teaches a lady who's a doctor, MD. I'm not going to say what I was going to say because she might listen. Um, she plays the piano, I'll just say that. She comes to the house and plays. And when I'm studying, she plays. She's told she is a famous speaker now against abortion. Before she was saved, she performed abortions. She got saved, and now she goes all over the country. People invite her to come and speak against abortion. And she not only speaks against it, but being an MD, she has all the medical research. And she now deals with it from that perspective. And there are, there are places where she goes to speak where she can hardly get in there because of the opposition. My point is, if you want to attack the sins of our nation, do it in the name of Jesus and get people saved. You see, a saved man or woman will give up homosexuality when they meet Jesus. A saved man or woman will give up running around in adultery and fornication. They'll give up lying and cheating and stealing when they meet Jesus. Why? Listen to me. Because they go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, and the walk changes. The lifestyle changes. You say, well, pastor, what about people who say they got saved and nothing happens? You tell me. If the lifestyle don't change, then they're still dead. Follow me? And everybody that says they know Jesus, what did Jesus say about that? There'll be a day when they say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, mm, I know you did all these things you just said, but you have to depart from me because I did not know you. You were never born again. Okay? So there's a lot of people out there like that. So here's the deal. We had a lifestyle evidence when we were lost, and the lifestyle should be different now. Notice that Paul said our lifestyle was according to the course of this world. We talked about that this morning, didn't we? I won't rehash all that, but I'll remind you of the three. Our world is eat up with secular humanism. In secular humanism, we elevate man to be God. We elevate man to be the answer to all of his problems. I will never forget this because I've had these debates with, with academia in the schools, some of the schools I've taught in, and, and someone made a comment, science is going to fix all of man's problems. I said, well, you better get started because this is not doing very good right now. I'll just help you. Science is not going to fix all man's problems. Science can't begin to fix man's problems because the problem isn't outside, the problem's on the inside. And only Jesus can fix the spiritually dead person, so there's where the problem begins. Science is not going to do it. The world is eat up with materialism. On the way to church, I drive 30 minutes over here from Plymouth Island. Can't tell you how many people are passing their boats and their jet skis and their fishing boats and headed to the beach and their coolers and their trucks and, and all their stuff. And man, they're headed out to have a good time. 
Mm. Ain't no beachfront property in hell. And you don't need a bass boat there. The problem is we're eat up with materialism and money and stuff. Just a reminder, you do know we're leaving all that stuff here, right? The houses, the, the cars, and the boats, and the, and the stuff. Now listen, Abraham was wealthy, and so was Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. Nothing wrong with being wealthy. If God's blessed you to be wealthy, great. God bless you. Wonderful. Just be sure you have the right perspective. Don't get consumed in the materialistic world of things. Paul said we walked like that when we were lost. This world's eaten up, as we said this morning, with illicit sexuality, all the perversions. And you will notice if you read Romans chapter 1, that's a sign of a, of a society who's reaching the end of his rope, especially with God. And we're there. We've got to be down on the last knot somewhere because we in society have lost our minds. And with children in school and elementary, we've, ever, we've lost our ever-loving minds. And, and isn't it amazing that secular humanistic society can't see it because they're blind, because they're spiritually dead? Paul said, before we were saved, listen, we walked like that. We lived in that. And we couldn't see the difference either. But when God brought spiritual life, now we can see it. And he said, we walked according to the lust of the flesh. You see that? Well, that's 1 John 2, 16. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. That's what moves people. And Paul said, in which you once walked. You know what we can say when a lost person says, you don't know what it's like? You can say, oh, brother, I've been there. I've been right where you are. I was lost before I got saved. I know exactly what you're dealing with. And by the way, I know what the answer is. His name's Jesus. If you come to him, you can get born again. And Paul even says that, that we once walked that way, but he quickened us. That means made us alive, gave us life on the inside. Look at verses 4 to 7. But God, if, if you write in your Bible, you just want to underline that. Because all that stuff in the first three verses are a mess, aren't they? But God. And man, aren't we glad there is but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Boy, this is good. There was a time, Paul said, when you were lost, you were dead in your sins, you were spiritually dead, but God came along. Now, what's the motive here? Why would God, I mean, just think of your own self. Think of yourself. Why would God, when I was in my lostness, why would God give me the time of day? Do I have anything to offer God? Nope. Do I have anything that God didn't already give me first? Nope. I mean, physical life he gave me. Birth from my mother and, and brought into life, God did that. Was there any reason that God would look down into this world and pick any one of us to save us? I'll help you. No. Not one reason. But there is one reason why he saved us. Love. That's it. His love. His love, God's motive for saving you and me, was love. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. 
but he loves us. In fact, Paul said it is his great love, wonderful love, immeasurable love, love that we can't conceive of, love that we can't perceive, love that we can't understand. I mean, what kind of love would drive Jesus to lay aside his glory, take on a body, become a human being and God at the same time, and take my sin to the cross and your sin to the cross? What kind of love would drive the creator, God of the universe to do that? A love you and I can't really grasp. That's what kind of love. Love moved God to come and save us. And then Paul connected to love, mercy. He uses the word rich in mercy which is a Greek word that means overflowing, immeasurable, abundant, meaning that, that God's mercy is beyond measure. You can't quantify God's mercy. It has no limit. There is no lost person that God won't save if they'll respond. There's no person so lost in their sin, so bad, so corrupt, the person we talked about in the beginning on the bottom of the list, the axe murderer, the mass murderer, God will save every one of them. God would have saved Adolf Hitler if he would have got on his knees and asked for forgiveness. Amen. There's nobody. Why? Because of his rich mercy, his overflowing mercy that has no limit. Now, here's the caveat. You ready? You have to receive it. You have to receive it. Amen. God's love is immeasurable, and it's offered to us in his son, Jesus Christ, for God so loved the world. His mercy beyond measure, he holds it out to us. You can have it. But you have to receive it. We are accountable as creatures created in his image with a free will. We have to respond. We have to accept Christ. We have to respond to his conviction and to what we understand. Now notice verse 5 again. Even when we were dead and trespasses, made alive together in Christ. I like that. When we respond to God, when we understand the conviction and on the day we responded, here's what he did. He made us alive in Christ. He gave us spiritual life. What does it mean to be alive in Christ? It means to be instantly, immediately, in the moment that we believe by faith, we're connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In the moment we believe by faith, his sacrifice became sufficient for us. His righteousness applied to our account. In an instant, in a moment, all of eternity settled. That's good stuff. And let me just add this. Since God did that great work for us the day we were saved, can I say again that your salvation is secure if you've been saved? God's immeasurable mercy and his grace and his love beyond measure cannot be undone. If you're a born-again child of God, you can't lose your salvation. You can never be spiritually dead again because God made you spiritually alive. Now, for what purpose did God save us? That's a question that sometimes you ponder. God, I don't deserve to be saved, but you saved me because of your love and your great mercy. So why did you save me? Look at verses 6 and 7 again and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's interesting. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's some cool stuff here. Let me just share it with you very quickly. 
He made us to sit with Jesus in the heavenlies. The Greek word there is an aorist tense, which means it's already happened. It's already counted as happening. And here's what that means. The moment you were saved, the moment God gave you spiritual life, you were positionally sit with Jesus in heaven. That's pretty cool, isn't it? You say, now wait a minute, preacher. Do you mean I get to sit with Jesus in his glory? That's exactly what I mean. Again, it makes you go, why would you do that? Love. God, why would you do that? Why would you save me? And then on top of saving me and giving me spiritual life and eternal life, now you're going to sit me in heavenly places with you? Are you going to let me sit there with you and have fellowship with you? Now don't get too carried away. We don't, we don't have the same glory as Jesus. He's sharing his with us. That's incredible, isn't it? That he calls us brothers and sisters, that he takes us into his family and makes us heirs and joint heirs with him. We get to sit with them and share and enjoy his glory. You say, well, what is that going to be like? Well, here's the one part I know it's going to be like. I already like Jesus. How about you? I mean, I already love him. Like's not a good word. I'm kind of like Peter, though. I'm afraid sometimes to say, Lord, I love you because tomorrow I'm going to fall on my face. So, you know what I mean? I have to be careful there. But the fact is, I have, I have a connection with Jesus because he saved me. And he's my God, and I worship him, and I adore him. When we get to heaven and we get to, we get to sit in the front row up by his throne and see his glory, do you know how good that's going to be? I mean, to be close to it. As his born-again, redeemed bride of Christ, the church, we don't sit in the back row. We sit up front with him. Man, that's good, isn't it? You ever go to a fancy dinner place somewhere? and you're a friend of the host, and they give you one of them little card things that says you get to sit at the main table. That's pretty nice, isn't it? Because you ain't nobody, but they act like you're somebody, so you get to go sit up at the front table with them, and you get to sit there with them. You know what God's done for us in Jesus? You get to sit at the head table. You get to sit up front with Jesus. That's what that means. Not only did he give us, give us eternal life, make us spiritually alive, but he's given us a place seated with him. And then he said that uh, this giving is for us to bring glory to him forever, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's how I always describe that. Forever and eternity, listen to me, forever and eternity, you and I are going to be exhibit A of what God's love looks like. I don't have time to go down this road, but think about this. How do you define love? I mean, God is love. The Bible says that's his character. That's who he is. It isn't just an attribute. He is love. You know, I can describe a lot of things and quantify it. I can say that's water and that's a bottle and this is wood. And I can describe what it is and you can look at it. But what, how, do you, how do you put love into a, a box where you can say, man, that's what love is? You can't really define it, can you? You can't really put a handle on it. But when you get to heaven, everybody in heaven's going to walk by and look at us and go, that's what love looks like. Look at them. They're here. That's what love looks like. That's what God's love looks like, the testimony to God's love for all of eternity. I think about these kind of things. We were talking about it Wednesday night. I'm going to close in a second. I often, in my mind, I'll be studying, and I think, man, Lord, what's, what's heaven going to be like? And what's it, you know, there's cherubim there and seraphim, and there's angels. And there may, be, there may be angelic beings there that aren't even mentioned in the Bible because God just created beauty. And these angels and these cherubim and the seraphim are beautiful. They're majestic, and they surround the throne, and they sing. And I think, man, 
you know, I'm going to be like a, I'm going to be like a, a, a kid out of, you know, feel like I'm out of place, but I'm, I'm going to probably just want to go over and stand in the corner and look around for a while. I mean, because there'll be stuff there that'll just be so magnificent in the glory of Jesus. But no, we're going to be front and center. We're going to be up front with Jesus, seated with him. And I often think maybe the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim and the other created beings who know what God's doing and know his plan, they, they've had part in it, messengers and doing things. I think we'll get to talk to them. I don't know how it's going to go, but, you know, Gabriel might come by and go, man, God really loves y'all. So I can say, I mean, that you're here, this kind of blows our mind, but that's a great God, isn't he? And maybe a cherubim comes by and says, man, I've been circling the throne of God since time began, and I've never seen a bunch like you before. He said, I, you know, I don't know what the conversation is going to be like, but you know what? We got the glory of Jesus Christ on us, and we got the righteousness of Jesus Christ on us, and we're going to fit right in there just fine. And we're going to be seated with him, and all of heaven's going to say, man, there's what God love, God's love looks like. Let me finish with verses 8 and 9, which are very familiar. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now Paul takes a step back and he says, boy, with all that greatness that Jesus has done for us, he said, remember this, you're saved by grace plus nothing. Not the works of man lest we should boast. If anybody could say, God, you saved me because I did something, then God would owe us and God owes nobody. We're saved by grace plus nothing. It's God's grace. Now watch this. The faith that we believed with wasn't ours, it's God's. God gives us the faith that we believe with. Now here's the connection, here's the, here's the catch. God provides everything that a lost man or woman needs to be saved. He provided the sacrifice, he paid for the sins. Jesus is standing by to forgive as soon as they call. God even convicts and provides the faith they need to believe with. There's one thing missing, the person has to believe. The person has to accept what God's done for them exercise the faith that God gave them to believe and be saved. And when we are saved, God has saved us to good works. Now, good works won't save you, but good works always accompany those who have been saved. Why? Because it's fruit. It's spiritual fruit. It's God producing fruit in our lives. So let me close with this. The process of salvation, as I said this morning, seems very straightforward and simple, doesn't it? But you got to come and you got to accept it. And it costs God everything. It costs him his only begotten son. Everybody here already told me you're saved. I believe you. If you're not saved, you need to get saved. Maybe somebody's watching online tonight. You need to be saved. Would you pray to receive Christ tonight? And rejoice. Rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. Seated in heavenly places with him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine us seated with Jesus? But that's what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, what a marvelous thing we've read and put our minds around tonight. That, God, you would bring spiritual life where there was spiritual death. God, that you would call us, convict us, open our eyes to see, and provide the very faith that we need to exercise to be saved. God, you gave all that. You placed it there for us. 
Thank you, Lord, for drawing us. Thank you, Lord, for the day we believed and were saved, for the spiritual life you gave us that really is forever. Father, I pray if somebody comes under the hearing of this passage, under your word, and Lord, they need to be saved right now, wherever they're at, listening to it as a recording, watching a video at home, that God, they would pause right now and ask for your forgiveness, God, and be saved and exercise that faith in Jesus Christ and be born again. Father, our hearts rejoice this evening to understand all the magnificent things that you've done for us. And God, what is yet to come, Lord, we look forward to with great anticipation. Help us to be faithful in the days that you give us here, Lord, to work and labor, that you be honored. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing. If I can help you, if you need to respond, if you need Christ, you come on the first verse this evening. I must tell Jesus all of my trials.